Welcome to the Ian Bowsfield Experience. I'm glad you're here. This series of podcasts are just things that come up in my mind when I'm thinking about playing, when I'm thinking about teaching, and general thoughts about music. There are some things here that I hope you'll find really useful. And don't forget, if you've got any comments or if there's anything you want to discuss further, go to ianbowsfield.com. A time when music was better, question mark. This is a subject that so many people have addressed and uh, I feel infinitely underqualified <laughs> academically to plow into this. Um, but hey, this is my podcast and I'm allowed to have a go at anything that I want. So here are my thoughts on a time when music was better because of this um, shutdown that we're all experiencing. Um, our teaching is all gone remote. That means we're all teaching, doing distance learning. And those of you who've been listening to these podcasts um, will be aware of um, the three-layered um, strategy that I use with my students and I'm enjoying very, very much. The first is obviously the one-to-one FaceTime that I have with them every week. And that's reducing in time. In some of them, it's only 10 to 15 minutes where it's like, how are you? Are you fighting with your mom and dad? <laughs> are you okay with your girlfriend? Everything all right? Um, what have you been cooking? What have you been eating, drinking? You know, <laughs> uh, how is it where you are? And also, and to discuss, you know, what, how they're feeling. I, I get a sense of judging emotionally how they're doing with the situation because it's not easy um, for any of us. So that's the one side of it. Um, and I tend to, I tend, I tend not to play anything for them and they don't play anything for me. We talk things through. And then the next thing is the series of recordings that they send. Sometimes I've got students who send me a recording every day and I give them real time commentary over what they're doing and discuss with them how they can move forward. I don't want to waste too much time explaining this. You've already heard this. But the third bit is the one that I like to concentrate on in this podcast, which is the listening list. Um, I wanted to uh, give my students a list of recordings, which was not my all-time top 10 Desert Island discs or even, um, uh, you know, like the, the my, my favourite recordings, what I listened to through my life. So there was nothing autobiographical, really, in, in the list. Um, and I think there was only one of my own recordings that I put on there. It was a series of recordings that I felt were important to my students both historically to understand how we've come to where we are today as, as musicians doing what we do in our aspect of music. And the other was to inform their fantasy because, you know, the, the most important part of any musician's technique is their brain. <laughs> and so we better educate it as well as we can, haven't we? You know, the further away you move from the brain, the less important the equipment is. You know, you've got your brain, your physicality, then the mouthpiece, or who knows, the bow, the string, whatever, you know. It moves, that's all less important. It's important, but it's not as important. So I'm trying to inform the brain, to inform the fantasy, so that my students get an, an archive of things they can draw upon and subconsciously use subconsciously and then in some case with some very obvious dramatic things consciously now 
it would be unfair. So there's a list of like 48 recordings and it's growing the whole time because every week I'm saying to certain students, you should listen to this or this or this. And it would be unfair for me to set this list for my students without listening to it myself. And so rather than putting bloody political <laughs> discussions on and finding out how our leaders are getting coronavirus wrong, I've decided to stop getting depressed by that and I've stopped um, reading my Facebook feed and I stopped listening to the radio and I've started listening to my own recommended listening list. And I'm, I'm astonished. I am really, you know, we all think we're so bloody smart. We all think we're so good. You know, it reminds me, I was, <laughs> I was said um, quite provocatively, you know, who's the best living trombonist in America or who's the best living trombonist in the world? This was up to, let's say, 10 years ago. And, you know, the hand would go up, hands would go up everywhere, you know, um, and, you know, the usual short list of name or names would come up. Mine was never on it, but there you go. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I said, but you, 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 you're missing, you're missing someone. And I used to say, you, what about Robert Isley? And they, these kids said, what, who? Robert Isley, I said, the greatest living trombonist. I think at the time he was like 90 or, you know, he died when he was 92. And Robert Isley was a student of Arthur Pryor and was in the US Marine Band and also in the National Symphony in Washington. Um, our thoughts all to the members of the National Symphony. Uh, let's hope there's a, a profession and an orchestra for them at the end of this crisis, which is I'm going to lead on to discuss later in this podcast. Um, and Bob Isley, have a listen to him on YouTube playing Annie Laurie. Bloody hell. Now you know where I copied it from. He was my hero. That guy, I mean, how many, how many of us in the world right now can get, a get around a trombone like that? How many of us? And we think we're so smart. We think we're so good. And that translates, it would appear to me, to in almost every aspect of music. Bruno Walter, Brahms' Fourth Symphony. I grew up with that as a kid. My dad used to play the whole time when I was going to sleep. I always said, you know, as a kid, I knew the entire orchestral repertoire, well, at least the first three movements of all of them because I'd fallen asleep by the fourth movement because my dad used to put it on to help me go to sleep when I was a kid. Um, and the Bruno Walter, Brahms for that warmth that envelops you from the beginning, and I keep talking about this on the Ratman Enough 2 with Ormandy, the same thing, just transports you to another world. When was the last time you heard a modern orchestral recording that did that? Um, and I, the more I dig, the deeper I dig, even, and so you can say, well, yeah, this memories of your childhood, of course. Of course you remember that. I mean, for, to, to get this all out of the way now, the third recording that I used to listen to a lot was Mad Last, Czech Philharmonic with Carol Anchel. And to this day, I remember the, what it is to be 
check i remember the very essence the ethos of, of the emotion and to be honest with you i had not listened to that recording since i think i was 11. i think my grandma whose recording it was i think she passed away when i was 11 10 or 11 so i haven't listened to it since then and i listened to it the other day and the playing is bloody dreadful <laughs> the playing is really not good and the recording quality is awful I mean, honestly, you'd send your iPhone back if it had recorded something that badly. But the musical ethos, the musical, the terroir, the essence of what it was to be Czech, was, it was stinking of it. It reeked of, of, of the essence of the music. And uh, the Bruno Walter, Brahms 4, um, I can't even remember to sing it. There's a mistake on the oboe in the first movement. <gasps> An American orchestra with a technical deficit in the first oboe. And so, yes, of course, they are the recordings of my childhood. They, that was the musical soundtrack, along with Stan Kenton, of my childhood. Um, but I've since gone into other things, like the Mravinsky, Leningrad Philharmonic recordings of Shostakovich symphonies. Oh, oh my goodness me. I directly compared the other day um, the Mravinsky Leningrad Philharmonic Shostakovich 4 recording, which you can find on YouTube, with the recent Boston Symphony Orchestra with Andres Nelson's recording of uh, Shostakovich 4. Now, before we go on, I, I am not here to knock my esteemed colleagues across the pond. Uh, I send you all my greetings and my love at this time. And I'm an enormous fan of Andres Nelson's. If there is a, if there's ever a uh, conductor around today who can possibly lead us back to those times, I think it's him. But he didn't. And the orchestra didn't do it. It's brilliant, amazing play. Jim Markey at the beginning. Wow, amazing. But do it compare it for yourself. We should be happy that the Boston Symphony can't play Shostakovich for like the Leningrad Philharmonic. Because who would wish it on any of the members of that orchestra, our dear colleagues, to go through what those poor bastards in Leningrad had to go through to create that the cold, the hardship. The terror, the horror of the regime under which they were living. And, you know, I mean, how can we do that? We, we do not know starvation. And let's hope we never do. And we do not know what it's like to uh, have a suitcase packed by the front door, just in case someone comes to get us. And that's what Shostakovich had to do. And so when we look at an extreme example like that, we should not on the one, we should not be surprised that the Boston Symphony cannot transport us back to there. And we should be happy that they can't. So this question mark, this is why there is a question mark after the a time when music was better. Question mark. Because do we really want that? Um, if you listen to the iconic recordings of all time, um, 
the uh, Marla 9 in Vienna with Bruno Walter. I'm becoming a bit of a Bruno Walter fan, as you can tell. Um, you know, those kind of things, as, they, as the Germans were, were marching in, as the Nazis were marching, marching into Vienna, do we really want to go back to that? Which English conductor was it? Malcolm Sargent or Thomas Beecham, who said musicians play better when they're starving? Um, very nice. Thank you very much. Um, do we really want to go back to that? I don't think so. Another, another um, aspect that I think that has been left out of this is um, that back in the the great recording days, those eras of the 50s and the 60s, um, conductors were much more allowed to be much more tyrannical than they can be today. <laughs> Notice the choice of the word allowed to be. <laughs> um, I think if we give them a chance again, some of them would be just as tyrannical today. Um, and um, Ralph Sauer, if you're listening to this, your old great loved colleague Byron Peebles uh, once said to me, he used to sit in his car in the morning and look in the mirror and say, please God, not me today. <laughs> How many of us have encountered that? I think I encountered that a little bit, only once in my life with um, uh, a much now revered, loved and cherished Stanislav Skrobachevsky when I first went to the Halle Orchestra. He was a disciple of George Zell. And so he um, tried to have the same sort of reign of um, control over the orchestra that Zell had over, over Cleveland. Um, I, I'm on the one hand a George Zell fan but on the other hand, there's another great thing that was the great conductors of the 20th century on YouTube or something like that. And there are some interviews with that guy. And um, I am a conductor fan. I really love them. But uh, he seemed like an ex deeply, deeply unpleasant person from what I could see. From what I could see. Reiner, Fritz Reiner, had the same sort of effect in Chicago. And then we had Schulte. And then they were all Hungarians. <laughs> I don't think there's anyone in Hungary listening to these podcasts, but that'd be fascinating to hear as to why you think that these tyrants are, are kind of tyrannical conductors. Are, uh, a lot of them are Hungarian. Uh, Eugene Ormandy. There you go. Ormandy. There you go. Another one. It's amazing. So conductors were tougher on us back then. You know, your job was under threat with every thing you played. You know, there was a joke in the Halle Orchestra where people would do a, an Im impression of, uh, of Stanislav Skowaczewski speaking, um, where, where they'd say, they would do an impersonation and say, first of all, thank you, your playing was beautiful, you may keep your job. Um, <laughs> and, and so, like I say, I did experience that a little bit, um, but not an awful lot, but it was very, it was very shocking for me. I was, I was young, I was 19, 20 years old at the time. So that's another reason. Also, if we go back to those recordings in the 50s and 60s, you were laying an absolute legacy down. And, and so it turned out to be. Um, I still kind of remember being a kid myself that making a recording was a big deal. 
It was you were you had the the, the opportunity for forever to lay down something really special. And then, of course, I remember when I went to the London Symphony Orchestra in 1988, it was kind of like the explosion of the CD era. And so everything that had been on LP needed to be re-recorded. And all of the companies were seeing how quickly they could get all of the repertoire back out on the shelves, you know, and all of these un unknown composers were just being, you know, knocked out there. I remember one time with Naomi Yavi uh, and Shandos, great days. <laughs> Sitting out to, I think we booked, like, we were booked four sessions to record a symphony and a, 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 a Brahms symphony. I think we recorded them all. And then, <laughs> you know, you're doing a CD a day, rehearse, record. It actually happened. And so we were making a CD every week um, with whoever the recording company had employed to come in and do it. And of course, how can that be special? Back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, you would have a tyrant intimidating an orchestra um, for weeks on a Brahms symphony. Then they'd do it in a season concert and then they'd go on tour and then they'd get back from the tour and you would lay something down from pos for posterity. I mean, massive investment of time and effort and energy in in those recordings. Now also if you look back at that time, the people the people were different. They had um, experienced hardship in life and here we go again, we're going back to hardship. They'd experienced hardship in life which showed them the beauty of our existence when it appeared. So they could take you to hardship because they'd been there, but they could also show you the truth and the beauty of life because they appreciated it perhaps more than we do today. Who knows, we may be in a time now when um, we're going to unfortunately be faced with similar things. Um, so when I started in the music business in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, we had people I, who had been refugees in the Second World War, who, who had been bombed out of their house. My father was bombed out of his house and injured. Um, and you had people who fought in the Second World War and all the rest of it shouldn't be too much of a depressing podcast because the positive side of this is what can we learn from that and how can we grow into the next generation of music um i once had a discussion with another wonderful london first trombone player who i'm not going to name here um, because i haven't asked him whether i can <laughs> about nerves and we got onto the subject of beta blockers and meditation and what, what could be done or whatever. And he said, 
you know, back back in our day when we started, nerves was not the issue that is it is today. A lot of the people on that platform had been on a battlefield. <laughs> You're not going to get scared by a bloody Brahms symphony, are you? <laughs> and it's an interesting point, I must say. So where do we go from here? We are all in a position to stop and think about where we are. We all have time on our hands. Listen to those recordings. And uh, I'm sure you'll hear exactly what I'm talking about. In my love of doing time travel and being taken back to another era, those old recordings can do that for you. Um, incidentally, going back to my favorite recording, the Brahms Four, the Columbia Symphony Orchestra. Here's another interesting point. <laughs> the Columbia Symphony Orchestra was a bunch of freelancers put together to do recordings with a certain number of conductors. I think Bernstein did some, Beecham did some, and um, they were basic. The Columbia Symphony was basically the New York Philharmonic. And I think that Brahms Hall was done in 1948. Some, some recording uh, historian nerd will no doubt correct me, and I'd be very grateful for, for the correction. Um, it was 1948. In 1951, Bruno Walter recorded Brahms Hall with the New York Philharmonic, and it is nowhere near as good. <laughs> so, so... Uh, the freelance musicians, are they under more pressure to play better than those with a stable contract? Do we help ourselves? Is this good for business? <laughs> so we have this time to stop and think about what, what we have been doing, how we've got to where we are, and where we're going to grow from here. I mentioned on the live podcast last Friday of uh, a dangerous situation. Uh, into which we go. When I was a kid, being a publisher and an arranger was a career. It was a profession for a lot of people. Because if you did an arrangement of something, um, they would earn money off the royalties of people buying it. The publishing company would give up to 20%, although that's been knocked down these days, up to 20% of the uh, sale of that piece of music to the arranger um, and composers earned money because um, people bought copies of their music. How many of you out there own original hard copies of everything that you have? I have students who do not own a single piece of music and they laugh at you if you suggest than buying it. I have friends who have PDF'd everything. Everything. And at this point, I'd like to um, congratulate two of my esteemed uh, colleagues, uh, Professors Bill Stanley and Jacques Moget, both of whom who insist on only original copies in their teaching studios. Well done, guys. So being a publisher, being a composer and being an arranger, He's now no longer a profession. Okay, check that one off. That's gone. That's no longer a profession. So if you, as students out there, were not going to quite going to make it as a, as, a, as a trombone player, but you did good arrangements, forget it. That line of employment is out. It's gone to you. 
Now, we used to earn money uh, for making recordings. And uh, uh, I used to do quite well making money. People paid me to make recordings, you know. They don't now. And all of you guys out there, you can listen to anything you want on, you know, the usual streams. Pretty much free of charge. And uh, I don't get anything. And not really. All the money goes to a few billionaires who are taking all of our money. That's the system that you have willingly gone into. So you, excuse me, we have gone into. <laughs> I listen to them too. So there's another line of income that's gone. And, you know, as the internet and this connectivity builds up speed, there'll be other ones that get closed off. Right now, we've got free online lessons, haven't we? In the name of coronavirus. You've got people doing masterclasses, in some cases every day, online, free of charge. Um, beware. It's great for you, isn't it? You know, you get all this stuff free. Not all of it's good, but you get it free. And so at the end of this, our masterclass is going to be free. Um, online free you don't have to pay for them anymore great now i want you to realize right now i'm fine i am fine and i am gonna be fine i'm worried about you i'm worried about the profession that i love because i want to make sure that these wonderful people that i educate have a career to go into have a profession to go into at the end of this and if we keep checking off all of these avenues of income um it's going to make it harder and harder. I mean, we all we all know that winning a job in an orchestra is, is tough. There are a lot of students, a lot of people wanting jobs and not that many jobs going around. But we don't want to then start closing off plan B, plan C and plan D. So we need to really, I think as a community, have a think about this. So I think as a result of this, there's going to be a short-term decline in the music business some orchestras will fold um and you know there'll be less and less work and musicians are going to have to tighten their belts as if they weren't already tight enough certainly in countries like england so i think there's going to be a short-term decline however i think there's going to be the rebirth of our profession so this, what might have seemed a terminally depressed podcast about how it used to be better and we're not good, I think the future is and can be extremely rosy for us. It's the rebirth of the listener because there is nothing like live performance because it will change your life but it requires the rebirth of the performer. We cannot go out there and just trot it out anymore. We can't go out there as orchestras just phoning it in. We have to go back to doing what they were doing in the 40s and 50s. Again, I just realized I've been talking for 26 minutes and I haven't mentioned the Vienna Philharmonic yet. <laughs> Time I did. I've seen people crying in Vienna Philharmonic concerts. That was a new one for me. I love, love the London Symphony so, so, so much. Um, but I never saw them have that effect 
on an audience. First of all, that requires having an incredibly highly educated audience, which is another podcast all in itself, um, which they do in, in Austria, perhaps the most highly educated musical audience in the world. Um, but secondly, the, the orchestra is not forgotten. I haven't really played there for eight years, but it hasn't really forgotten what it is to perform. It hasn't forgotten what it is to try and make us something special, special, special. And we all fall, fall into this trap, this problem of perfection. And I'm going to give you two quotes. One is a trombone player, one is a composer. Shostakovich, there is no beauty in perfection. And John Swallow, some of the older trombone players listening to this may know who he was. He um, was first trombone in the Metropolitan Opera and um, for many years. And Gunther Schuller wrote Eine kleine Posano music for him. And I sat on a jury once with, with uh, John and I was talking about, you know, da, 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 da. Uh, and I used, this, I used the words technically perfect. And he said to me, young man, never forget that on musicality is also a technical weakness. It's a hole in your basic technique. <laughs> and that, you know how, how certain phrases can change your life? And that did change the way I thought. It focused my, uh, what was already in my psyche. And I was so grateful to him for having said that. So we need to make sure that we come out of this giving the public an experience that makes them want to come back and back and back and back. And it means the end of protectionism in any regard of employment, that we owe it to ourselves and to our career to make sure we employ the best people all of the time and that we never get complacent because who wants that tyrant back in front of us? I used to say when I was in London, and this is telling a bit of an inside secret here, but at one point we had, um, we had three con conductors in the early... 90s who who were regularly there michael tilson thomas obviously because he was the music director george schulte who had a very close relationship with the orchestra and pierre boules and pierre boules my beloved pierre boules would um intimidate the orchestra with his ears with his exactitude with his insistence on detail and there was, without any question of a doubt, there was an air of element of fear in the room. Um, but not in the old ty tyrannical sort of way. It was like you were aware, you were confronted somewhat with someone who knew that score intimately and had a better pair of ears than you did. And then George Schulte, who would scream at you if you didn't do what he wanted. Literally. His nickname in the London Philharmonic was the Screaming Skull. And again, and I loved him too. I had my ups and downs with him, but there were more ups than downs, and I loved working for him. But he had people scared to death screaming at them. Um, usually, I have to say, it was if he saw any resistance in their eyes. That was just a, another inside tip. 
you know, if, if you've got a conductor in front of you, try and do what they want. Don't show resistance and you're going to be okay, basically. Then there was Michael Tilson Thomas. And Michael would ask once, politely, respectfully. And I used to go to people and say, what the heck are you doing? Do you want him to scream? Do you want him to put you in fear of your job? Is this, do we need this? Do we have to do this? This guy's just been infinitely respectful to you and he didn't do what he asked. And he never, he was so decent that he never asked again because he respected the person listening enough that they heard what he wanted and if they chose not to do it, he didn't insist. Is that the kind of, that, that is not the kind of environment that we want in, in the future. So we need to come out of this situation swinging you know we need to come out really trying to make something special because it doesn't matter what you do online it's not the same music is live music happens live recordings are what you listen to when you can't get to a concert they can only be a replacement for us we can only be replaced if we allow ourselves to be replaced by doing mediocre concerts. So we have to show the listener, the live audience in the concert hall, the beauty of person to person or ensemble to audience, direct communication of emotion, of feeling, of time travel, of excitement, of danger. We can't go into a concert hall and trot out performances of, in inverted commas, perfection. We need to show the audience the fragility of human endeavour and of striving. The more we strive, the more we have to fight, the more emotion goes into music in many ways the more easy we make it for ourselves the more comfortable our lives our existences are the more easygoing it is the less likely we are to really stand up and deliver and the way forwards for us now is to find a way of reproducing what they had in the 50s 30s 40s 50s the old way of performing without the hardship that's our challenge as we move forwards but without that I think we're going to lose our audience. I think this is what he's going to finally do. You all thought it was great in the beginning to be online. All the cool guys were doing that. That's what everyone did. We all, you know, it's all going digital. It's all going online. You will look what's happening. You know, our careers are going to slowly disappear. And, you know, very few people, like I say, don't worry about me. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be fine. But we need to find a way of moving out of this to keep our profession alive because it's the beauty in what we do. Let's not forget that the majority of our audiences are not going to notice if you play slightly out of tune. They're not going to notice if you make a couple of mistakes. And to be fair, they wouldn't care if they did. <laughs> now that shouldn't be an excuse to sit on another stage and play <laughs> deliberately badly but we should definitely quite deliberately be taking risks that could create something 
They might not notice the intonation, but they would notice the excitement. They would notice the drama that they notice. Um, I've mentioned this before in podcasts. I remember Rostropovich, one of, never mind the, the greatest cellist of all time, one of the greatest musicians of all time, certainly in my lifetime. You know, that guy had the ability to uh, make corporate businessmen, having drunk half a bottle of champagne, cry. That they were there at the concert because the company had sponsored it and they didn't really want to be there, but they felt they ought to. He could bring them to tears and he didn't do it by perfect intonation, hitting all the notes right in the middle and making a very nice sound. He was accessing something else and that's what we have to bring into the concert hall now. Um, so I think, and we can do this, I see a really great future for us at the end of this situation. Um, and I'm very, very much looking forward to how this is going to grow. Musicians are essential. We've adapted throughout the years and will continue to evolve. And But we can't come out of this looking for investment funding with our hands out saying we're entitled to a job. Yes, we can. But we've got to show that we're worth it. When we come out of this, we need to be that breath of fresh air that people missed all of that time that they were in lockdown. And there endeth this lecture. Thank you for tolerating this uh, podcast. Um, I have to say, as I said at the beginning, I feel profoundly underqualified to... Um, have said what I've said, <laughs> but perhaps it will start a bigger conversation in the room and I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts on it. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. If there are any issues that you found particularly interesting, don't forget to contact me and always go to uh, ianbowsfield.com for lots more interesting stuff.